Episode 74, What Healthcare Organizations Need to Succeed. Today, I speak with Dave Chase. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Whenever I want to know who's doing what in healthcare, I head over to Dave Chase's articles on LinkedIn and Forbes. Somehow or another, Dave manages to summarize all the most important stuff in like three paragraphs. Currently, his storied career has evolved into a new direction. He's a managing partner over at HealthFunder and a senior advisor to Cascadia Capital. Today, we talk about the principles that separate healthcare business ventures Dave predicts have a chance of success from those less likely to go anywhere, among a few other topics. My name is Stacy Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Dave. Thank you. Honored to be here. I've listened for at least 50 episodes and honored to be invited and looking forward to it. It's going to be fun. You founded Avado, and it was acquired by WebMD a little over two years ago. And as of this past spring, you started winding down your time there. How have you occupied yourself for the past six months or so, my friend? Yeah, well, I guess you'd say I, I went on a walkabout, took off to Europe with a family right after my last day and, you know, reflected on, you know, where's the most value that I can add to healthcare. One of the areas was looking at, there's so much change as we all know. And there was a thing that was done in the late nineties, really, that was very influential on the internet called the clue train manifesto. That was essentially a very forward looking kind of set of guiding principles for how successful businesses will operate. thought, gosh, healthcare kind of needs something like that. Ended up teaming up with Leonard Kish, who'd had kind of a similar thought, and we'd been kicking around ideas like this for a while, and then essentially curated this. And it was a great way to sort of see, okay, where's, again, I can add the most value. That led into a reflection that gosh, you know, we don't realize the full potential of healthcare. There's a concept originated in Toyota that if you've ever read the Lean Startup talks about, which is the five whys. You know, if you ask why five times, you often get to the root cause of issues. I believe that one of the the kind of the root cause of why we don't realize as much potential out of healthcare is we don't purchase healthcare very smart. You know, we know more than half the dollars are wasted in healthcare. Then that sort of put the wheels in motion of, okay, where are the biggest levers that I can have an impact on? And that kind of led naturally to going into the investment area as opposed to doing another startup. I saw that there was a gap and I'd been an advisor with an organization called Health Funder. Why don't we circle back to the very beginning of your walkabout journey you and Leonard Kish, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you created what you call the 95 Theses for a New Health Ecosystem. How did that fit into 
your quest to make a dent in this healthcare universe that we have here? We had both heard a lot of great thinking from a lot of different people. And really what the theses are is a curation of who we perceive to be some of the best thinkers in these areas, really soup to nuts of if you're truly setting up a new ecosystem, which we think is really taking place, it really runs the gamut from how health plans should operate to privacy and so on. You know, we looked at that as as having had that experience with the Clue Train Manifesto, where it was really very informative, helped organizations as they were weighing what to do in the future, how to think about things. And I think importantly for a lot of your listeners is they're change agents within their organizations. And so that information can be helpful, but also can be air cover if they're getting pushback. You know, we can't make these kind of wholesale changes if there's not a tremendous network of people around the industry. And so giving them tools was very helpful. And kind of one thing led to another where we're turning that into a book where each of these theses is probably one to three sentences, which is hopefully useful, but maybe not totally actionable. So we have gotten individuals that we perceive to be the smartest about these different topics and expanding kind of article length and just some amazing people that agreed with our perspective on them. I mean, people like Esther Dyson and Eric Topol and Bill Gates and, and many others who volunteered to basically contribute their thoughts. So we hope that's you know very helpful to kind of changing the, the thought process, which we, we think is important as the ecosystem evolves. And if we take those 95 theses and we kind of break them down maybe into categories, or if you could give some examples of what exactly are these guiding principles? If you look at the high-level categories, we have things like a new science. There's the way clinical trials will be done should be different. Another category is openness drives effective action. And then there's another one on economics and transparency, and then relationships and peer-to-peer networks becoming central. There's community-driven health. There's so many other things that drive health. And if you're an outcomes-based model, those are really critical and not an afterthought. And really new choices for both individuals and care teams, how engagement works, really different economic models, how education in terms of medical education will evolve, new data ownership rights, and so on. There's a few others, but those are some of the highlights. How do you envision people using these things? Do you envision a business owner using them almost like the Ten Commandments to create the business model of the future, the underpinnings? Or, you know, how does this all fit into the transformations that we need to see within healthcare and healthcare delivery? I would say that it it is kind of that Ten Commandments of both this overlap of what is best for the individual and society is also best for the business. And I think that's the most exciting thing about the changes in healthcare is there's now much more alignment between what's best for individuals and society and what's best for the bottom line. You know, it's our point of view that if you're not adhering to these, you know, commandments or theses as as we're calling them, you're not going to have the success that you would otherwise have. And it's a different set of rules. And so 
I'm sure that some of it will be looked at just like the clue train was where people like it, gosh, this is at odds with how we've operated in the past, but it, you know, we know a lot of the incentives are, you know, we've done a 180. So it stands to reason there will be different guiding principles for success. We hope that will shortcut the process for them. And as I mentioned earlier, give them some air cover if they're getting pushback. Look, this is what it's going to take to succeed here. There's some pretty, you know, smart folks who have put this together and expanded on this, whether it's a Susanna Fox or, a, you know, Dave DeBroncard or, you know, you name it. People have really thought through these issues and, and are having real success out there in the, the new ecosystem. You sell your company to WebMD, then you start contemplating the universe from the ground up. I mean, because really what you're talking about with the, the 95 Theses is very much a fundamental, I mean, it's almost a cultural shift. Very much so. And then what happens? I know you have you moved from sort of the the theoretical to the actionable and the the executable with two companies that you are currently involved with in the the venture space. Can you talk about how you got from theory to real world? Yeah, it, it's interesting. It was pretty organic in that the complement to the ninety five theses is something I'm calling health Rosetta. It's essentially a blueprint for how to purchase healthcare services smart. Going back to the point I made earlier, I will quickly say I am no Elon Musk, but I will take inspiration from Elon Musk, where he recognized that by opening up the patents for Tesla, that was going to accelerate the growth of the electric car ecosystem. And, you know, rising tide lifts all boats. And so I thought, gosh, we just need to be smarter there. That was really just kind of, hey, this is, I was kind of surprised as I was on this quest to find the highest performing providers and the highest performing ways to procure healthcare services that more people didn't know about them. I was like, that just needs to get out there. I didn't really care or think about what the business model was. Around that time frame, I'd been an advisor to Health Funder. They said, oh, you know, now that you've left WebMD, you know, would you like to get more involved? And, you know, it wasn't obvious right away, but I took a step back and said, oh, gosh, if you look at Health Rosetta, another way to look at that is basically an investment thesis. Because if you believe that things are going to get more rational, people will purchase value, they will follow this blueprint. It only stands to reason that there's going to be companies that either directly do the components of the health rosetta, such as a value-based primary care or a transparent medical network, but they may provide the enabling technology of the so-called picks and shovels of the change. And so that really got me excited about, gosh, that could be a really big lever. Certainly we see a gap there, but in the case of venture investing, it's not a like a lot of technology categories where it's winner takes all. I'm happy for people to steal our investment thesis, and we're going to share that more and more. I think that's something that Fred Wilson in the general technology space has done a really good job of. You know, during that time as well, the company that had the investment bank that had advised Avado on the WebMD acquisition was Cascadia Capital, that was very helpful to us through the process. They said, "Gosh, you know, we've liked." you know, what you're writing. And they have this role called a senior advisor. It's not a staff role, but it helps guide their industry practices. It's a nice compliment to health funder. And 
And that health funder is really focused in on some people call it institutional seed. It's kind of after the friends and family, but before series A and more traditional venture capital, which is well addressed. But I certainly felt the pain as a startup at this gap in between there that we're trying to fill with health funder. Then venture comes in. I think that's well addressed. And then the next phase is either companies are going through M&A, which is probably two-thirds of Cascadia Capital's business, and then a third of growth equity capital raise. And during that, as we explored that, one of the things that I also thought has been very helpful over the years in the internet was a report that comes out every year done by Mary Meeker. I think originally she was at Morgan Stanley, now that she's at the famous venture capital firm Kleiner Perkins. It's this internet trends report. It's like this epic you know, presentation, you know, 100, 200 slides. And it's like, gosh, healthcare has really not had that. I think it needs that. And Cascadia had already done some work in there, but I thought about a lot of that kind of system level change. So that was really the anchor of, of our working together. And by the time the podcast gets posted, uh, we're going to release that. Certainly, Mary Meeker's taken 20 years to get where she is. We have a long journey ahead, but we hope that it will be as helpful for the ecosystem and our companies as, as uh, that has been for people. Well, I have been very pleased to take a look at the report that you mentioned. Although I would have to say when I opened up the file and I thought it was 10 or 11 slides and then I realized it was 110 slides. <laughs> <laughs> so it is very thorough, but but I was glued to the presentation. And I definitely want to circle around to that because there was one slide in particular, the taxonomy, yeah. that I, I must have stared at it for 10 minutes. But let's just put that in as a uh, intriguing teaser. I think it's a really fascinating what you wound up, as you said, organically doing, but in, in hindsight, it probably makes a lot of sense that you went from the the theory and these 95 thesis and, and health Rosetta, which basically lay down, you know, as you call them, the guiding principles or the fundamentals or kind of the, the, the chassis maybe of how a business model needs to function or or the core imperatives of of a business model and then you actually went into the startup space or the venture space where i'm assuming what you're doing is kind of evaluating businesses on how well they are able to meet those principles and fundamentals which you you laid down earlier yeah a- absolutely and i think one of the biggest things that separates the winners and losers in the tech startup space, especially in healthcare. I mean, for a long time, despite you know having quite a bit of healthcare background before, I stayed away from healthcare. I had about a ten-year detour, and I said, you know, healthcare is where tech startups go to die because it's just been very unfriendly to the market. It's still extremely challenging, and what separates, I think, the winners and the losers is. How smart are they about their go-to-market? I mean, there's table stakes if you got to have interesting value-add technology, but you know, this day and age, that's not going to win the day. It's who's got a great go-to-market strategy and 
you know, kind of the yin and yang there would be the business model. There's going to be some very different sorts of business models that emerge aren't just pure software licensing. You know, there's going to be hybrid models where software companies are taking risk and getting very involved in ways they hadn't in the past. I've already seen some very clever business models that I think will feed on themselves in a good way. So that that is very helpful for us um, to think about. I'm sure this is more relevant to HealthFunder, where you're trying to be prescient and figure out which one of these very early startups is going to be able to grab a foothold in the larger market. Do you almost use the health rosetta as some sort of checklist? You know, like how, how do you advise people to actually use those principles? We are specifically looking at companies who are directly addressing those items either, you know, as a technology-enabled service or the enabling technology. And the other piece that I didn't mention that's a really critical filter for us is the quadruple aim. You know, most people listening have heard of the triple aim, you know, lower healthcare costs, improved health outcomes, and enhanced patient experience. The fourth and often forgotten aim is the improving the clinician experience. A lot of what I see is people throwing technology on top of a fundamentally flawed process. I mean, that was practically the first thing I learned when I was a, you know, green bean consultant at Accenture, you know, when I was 22 years old was don't throw technology on top of a broken process, fix the process first. So that is, is really foundational for us. And we don't think that it's sustainable when you just dump technology on top of a broken process. So that's why the smart purchasers of healthcare who are kind of following this health rosetta, they may only be 5, 10, 20% of the market in the next two or three years, but that's plenty to sustain companies. And we believe the whole market will move there. So we're very focused in on things that aren't just perpetuating the existing system and, you know, kind of put lipstick on a bulldog type of thing, which you see a lot or paving cow paths. So that is huge. And frankly, a lot of, you know, as we looked at investment funds and ultimately why I decided to get involved in the venture side was from a very rational standpoint, the healthcare venture funds of the past have really fueled healthcare's inflation, not stemmed it. That really does is a different lens, that kind of quadruple aim lens. And doctors certainly appreciate it. And, and it's really unfortunate, you know, what we've done to doctors in the current system. And I think we can, you know, get a whole heck of a lot more given the the smarts and passion and hard work that exists there. Can you give an example of a cow path that got paved or, you know, as you you said, which I f- find a really interesting summary, you know, that you can't just throw technology at a broken process. Is there sort of a seminal example of, of that happening? Uh, yeah, I think a good example would be a lot of the so-called transparency solutions that they might give you the price of the equivalent of the bumper and the steering wheel and the transmission and not the whole bundle. And then it's just giving you the best bad deal. And it's not looking at the fundamental process of, are we at the height of efficiency with our claims processing system? You know, no. Is that a consumer-friendly process? No. So there's companies that have rethought that from the ground up and providers who have. 
there is massive pricing failure in healthcare. You know, in most markets, there is an alignment between value and price. Generally, you pay more money for a car, you're going to probably get a higher quality car. You pay less, you're going to get a Yugo. A lot of times in healthcare, particularly on high cost things like surgeries, a lot of times the the there's an inverse relationship. So the people who do the most shoulder cuff procedures or spinal fusions or knee replacements, they're very efficient. They don't have complications. They'll do a bundle. If you basically show up with the equivalent, you know, of a bag of cash and they don't have to deal with pre-authorization and utilization review and claims processing and copay collections and patient accounts receivable. I mean, there's a lot of pain that's inflicted on the providers that if you remove that, then you can literally see 40, 50% less than the PPO discount, which is, you know, 80, 90% less than the, you know, so-called bill charges. I mean, it's really remarkable. There's plenty of you know, problems to fix in healthcare. But, you know, the, if you fix one thing, it's massive pricing failure. So that's a good example where just these so-called transparency solutions have really low utilization. And it's still very painful for the consumer to go through all these things. And, you know, they haven't really rethought the process. Taking that and connecting the dots between what you had said earlier about how the really successful companies of the future will have very innovative go-to-market strategies, I can see why they would actually need a very innovative go-to-market strategy. Because if you know, if you want to just make some changes around the margins, you're not disrupting people's way of life. You know, you're not fundamentally shaking their cage. Yeah. But as you start to you know, not just pave the cow path, as you said, as you you start to move the whole field, then you start getting people who start digging in their heels because they recognize that their vested interests and their whole way of life is going to shift. So you'd almost need a really innovative go-to-market strategy in order to make the very fundamental changes that you are asking people to make by adopting these new technologies or platforms yep. or whatever you'd want to call it. Do, do you have any advice for, you know, like w- with your work with with Health Funder in particular, have you seen any strategy or something um, which seems to work better? Yeah. There's a few things that sort of factor into my thinking in terms of where there's opportunity because there are three trillion reasons why a lot of organizations want to preserve the status quo. So you have to find where are the windows of opportunity. There's you know a couple that come to mind. One is with employers. My strong belief is employers are pouring more than enough money in to get great health benefits and fund a comfortable retirement for their employees, and they're getting neither today. There are some employers who recognize this and are really taking a radically different approach. I mean, there's an amazing story I could tell that the punchline is basically they're spending 50% less per capita on health benefits while providing fantastic benefits, and it's had a huge impact. The second window is, you know, as of January 1, 2016, the millennials are the single biggest chunk of the workforce. It's pretty amazing. You know, the the Xers had a short-lived moment in the sun, you know, between the boomers and the millennials. 
It's the biggest generation ever. And if you look at how the healthcare system is designed today and what it is to generalize millennials' want and value, it's basically a perfect polar opposite. You have organizations like Zoom Plus Performance Health Insurance that evolved out of a retail clinic little chain in Portland, Oregon, that's now essentially a Kaiser Permanente for the 21st century, some really creative models that they have in terms of care delivery and how they do handle emergencies. And I mean, really impressive. And the other caution I would give to people, but also maybe it's hope for the people who are really focused in these other models is I see, you know, part of my detour away from healthcare was spent in working with local media organizations as I was really involved in digital media. I mean, it is really striking the parallels between what newspaper execs were saying in the late 90s and what I hear, particularly out of provider system executives today. I mean, literally verbatim comments, you know, both local oligopoly, monopoly businesses, certainly, you know, it had a lot of success. They both have ignored these exponentially growing, but off a small base, businesses that, you know, the newspapers ignored the Craigslist, the eBay, the monster.com, cars.com, and then later on Google and others. And when they're small, they're easy to ignore. And the same thing is happening today. It's not the frontal assault that they, you know, the newspapers worried about the crosstown rival or, you know, Microsoft was the boogeyman of the day when it was really death by a thousand paper cuts. All those little slices are already getting cleaved out of a lot of the incumbent systems, and they're not even aware of it because it's still relatively small, but you're seeing incredible consumer satisfaction with them. The, the trick for the startups is if there's one thing they've got to be better than anything else, it's picking the right customers early on. I mean, I would say that was probably one of our biggest factors. Uh, some of the worst advice I got from investors was going, at, you know, trying to go after big names. Some of the big names can be useful. But generally, the fastest way to get the big name is to get a smaller name and prove it out there before you move there. And so that's that's one of the big tricks is picking your customers early as a startup. As you were talking, I was thinking of three things, Dave. The, the first one is nothing breeds failure like success. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just reminded me when you were talking about the, the newspapers, they had been oligarchs and preeminent for so long that they got very comfortable with being successful. and did not recognize the signs of doom. But the other aspect there is also really not understanding a value prop, and which reminds me of Kodak. You know, they thought they were in the, the film business, but actually yep. they were in the capturing precious moments business. So when you don't quite understand your value prop properly, you don't understand who's competing with you. Definitely. You look at the mission of virtually every significant healthcare organization I've seen, particularly on the provider side, will say something around being stewards of health in their community and so on. But, you know, we need to be brutally honest with ourselves. We're not doing a good job there. And we have, particularly everybody's heard the dollar spend relative to outcomes. And part of the problem, you know, the incentive system is, of course, fed that. And the problem that plagued newspapers and is plaguing a lot of the incumbents is a zero-sum game mindset. They just looked at their existing business, the newspapers looked at their existing business and didn't see all these other opportunities that ultimately 
the digital media business now has surpassed everything, including broadcast television, in terms of spend. And the newspapers could have acquired, built, partnered with probably what amounts to 90% of digital media revenue today and largely whiffed on that to the earlier point we were talking about. You know, with that industry schematic, we know that only 20% outcomes are driven by clinical care. We know that we're moving to a value and outcomes-based world. It's only logical that with 80% plus of healthcare spend being on chronic disease and the vast majority of decisions that drive outcomes, which we're going to get paid on, aren't made by the professionals. They're made by the patient, the family, the caregiver in the 99 plus percent of their life outside of the healthcare system. That other 99% really matters now beyond the humanity of it. You know, you've looked at that industry schematic. There are all kinds of opportunities in each of those non-clinical care buckets that are maybe not thought of as a healthcare company in a traditional sense, but they're definitely health focused. And there's tremendous opportunity and some really interesting things going on there that will provide all kinds of financial return for the, the folks who are smart there. And I'm going to follow your your segue. I was, I was actually thinking that it would be a good time to transition to the future of healthcare today, which was written by Cascadia Capital under your stewardship or with your, your framework, as you had, had mentioned earlier. What you're talking about right now, I believe, is slide four of that document. The title of the slide is The Future Health Ecosystem Will Focus on the True Drivers of Outcomes. And what you were just talking about is, is it's actually a square that I stared at for probably 10 minutes, which shows that clinical care, meaning access to care and the quality of care, is really only determines about 20% of outcomes. The other 80% being, you know, health behavior, being physical environment and social and economic factors, which is, is stunning. And, and there's a number of different slides which follow that, which, which drill down into to more detail. But my big takeaway with this is exactly what you're saying, that if we think about what is a healthcare startup, for example, we immediately keen in on oh, they do care paths or they help identify, you know, high acuity patients or evaluate risk or risk stratify or something like that. Like we immediately think about things which are very health related. But if we are talking about outcomes, which is where the value lies, then there are so many other business models or so many other foci that really contribute to those outcomes. And maybe a healthcare company is something that has nothing to do with, with the clinical environment. That, well, that was my takeaway, Dave. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a couple good examples of that are a startup called Healthify and another one called Care at Hand. And Healthify basically... They are paid by ACOs as their business model, but basically they kind of curate all these different social and human services programs in a community. I mean, the health system doesn't have to reinvent the wheel or whoever's taking the risk. Uh, there's a lot of things out there, but it's just hard to get your arms around. And they weave that into kind of the care management process and make sense out of it. Care at hand they recognize that a lot of what happens in the home 
if you observe it, will give you a lens into train wrecks coming. And so they said, gosh, there's people already going into individuals' homes like Meals on Wheels and non-clinical home care people. And they have them observe or ask a few key questions. They have been able to show that they've reduced hospitalizations dramatically by seeing particular issues in the home and giving them tools. They, you know, will also work with ACOs, but, you know, speaking of business models, I mean, one of the areas that's emerging where the ultimate payer may be a state government is there's this concept of social impact bonds or pay for success. It started, I think, actually in New York, there was some that was focused in on, you know, people leaving jail and then coming back. And, and, but in terms of healthcare, there's context like, asthma or COPD and things like that, that if they can show maybe through some social engagement activity, they can demonstrably and positively impact that they'll get paid and they'll get paid by the government in terms of maybe some kind of incentive system. And that's really where the creative business model comes in. And it may be the what you're finding is some of the foundations will provide the upfront investment capital to fund those programs, and then the payback, they'll get their investment return from, say, in that example, I gave the government saying, okay, you know, you proved this outcome that we agreed to up front, and it's pretty bulletproof, you know, you can basically get your bond paid back with an investment return. And so they're doing a social good as a foundation, but they can also get a financial return there. It almost sounds like we're coming full circle. I, I didn't realize this until recently, but the whole long-term care industry, pretty analogous to how that began. It was local government trying to figure out what to do with elderly people who couldn't live by themselves anymore. Yep. So I think there's a fairly good basis for what you're talking about there, if history repeats itself, which it tends to do so. Yeah. And there's lots of and there's lots of innovation in that area. In fact, that's one of the areas of the the health rosetta. And there's this Dr. Bill Thomas who's doing some amazing stuff with nursing homes and making those far more appealing and, and far more effective. Yeah, I can definitely see that that is certainly one area where there is huge dollars being spent. You know, I, I forget what the statistic is, but but so much healthcare spend happens within the last year or so of of a person's life. Yeah, I mean, I look at it very simply, you know, as a result of a conversation I had with one of Avado's advisors, Ted Epperly, who was the past president of the American Academy of Family Physicians. You know, he was going through end of life with his mother and said, Dave, what people actually want at the end of life is not all these aggressive interventions. They basically want to be warm, dry, and pain-free and with loved ones. If you can enable that, it'll go a long ways. And, and, you know, the kind of corollary to that and credit to health system in Wisconsin, Gunderson Health System, they have this program called Respecting Choices. And the way I look at it is, let everybody die the way doctors die. You know, they do die differently than the rest of us because they're aware of the limits of of what aggressive medical treatment can or can't do. And so they, in that community, 96% of people have an advanced directive. The healthcare system honors that. It's really better for everybody. And oh, by the way, they spend 40% less per capita on Medicare there. 
as the managing partner over at Health Funder and a senior advisor to Cascadia Capital, which are some of your primary pursuits these days, do you have any calls to action to listeners? Like, what would you recommend that that people do, or and where can they get a hold of information about those two companies? Should it be relevant? There's the websites for both CascadiaCapital.com, just the way it sounds, and uh, Health Funder. Kind of like it sounds, but drop the E like Flickr, Health Thunder without the, the E between the, the D and R at the end. So you can certainly go there and, you know, you can Google Health Rosetta and 95 Theses for a new health ecosystem. We've got websites for those. And certainly as far as the call to action, you know, I look at it, I don't know what the best analogy is. It could be an open source project or a Wikipedia where something like the Health Rosetta, which is open source, is there for the taking whatever are the best to breed components today. I sure hope aren't six or 12 months or two years from now. The more people can look at that, poke holes in it, the better. Again, it's open source. Take it for however it's going to be valuable to you. And same for the 95 theses. Take it and you know some of it's going to be more relevant for you. But, you know, I definitely believe in the rising tide lifts all boats. And so to try to be as open as possible on those things. Is there anything that you're particularly looking for relative to either Health Funder or Cascadia? Yeah. In terms of Cascadia, you know, certainly looking for great companies who are at that next phase of their development, whether they need growth capital or they're interested in M&A. A lot of times there's unsolicited interest that comes in. And I just had a call a couple days ago with a startup and like, gosh, we got this thing across the transom. That's what happened to us. How should we think about that? And they're happy to provide advice. And in terms of, of health funder, you know, we're you know, going to be looking for companies. The stage is generally, they are in the market. They've got revenues. They have at least one market segment pretty clearly aligned. So that, you know, they're they're real companies. They just haven't hit, you know, general rule of thumb, a million dollars run rate, which is usually what you need to get Series A funding. Um, but they can be really interesting companies. And as long as they are focused in around the health Rosetta and they are showing that they can positively impact the quadruple aim object objectives, which is going to filter out a huge number of companies. And there's a lot of great companies that won't necessarily be a fit. But that's why I want to be transparent about what we're doing there. And it's people can self-filter on where they're at in terms of company progress, but also where their focus is. Thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today, Dave. Absolutely. My pleasure. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far. There are over 50 at this point with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.